Okay, guys, guys, guys. All right. Before we begin, I think we should deal with any ongoing cult business. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Okay, on, sure. Whatever. It's right I don't here. Want to do that. It's right here in the cult charter. It's the rules. Oh, God. It's rules. Yeah, have right, a rules right. lawyer. Well, what have I mean, rules ever done for us? Item I mean... one. Someone left the door to the hazardous waste disposal unbolted again. And guys, I can't stress enough how bad an idea that is. Let's keep the unspeakable horrors contained, for Christ's sakes. Hey, I don't know why you're looking the, at me uh, when you say that. <laughs> isn't that where the U.S. military dumped all those drums of 245 trioxin? Worse. What could be worse than a chemical weapon that raises the dead? That's where Columbia Pictures dumped all the extra prints of Leonard Part 6. Oh my <gasps> God! Oh my sake! Someone put up a warning sign. There is a warning sign. It's in big scary letters. Yeah, then, yeah, it says beware then, of the Leonard. What kind of use is that? We shall increase the scariness. Uh, I suppose that back <sighs> Mark, but I don't think so. I mean- All right, mm. all right. And it looks like someone busted up the interocitor real good. Aww. Aww. And Brother Methuselah has gone missing. Oh, yeah. Hey. Hey. Okay. <laughs> oh, oh, and uh, check it out. I found a poster from the movie Time Bandits. Look, time holes. I love that film. In fact, that's what we should do for our next conclave. Boring administerial work? Time Bandits. Within the depths of the strip mall of the damned lies a decrepit video store long since shuttered. Past the dusty shelves, empty save for spiders spinning their patient webs. Beyond the ancient back-wing doors guarding the sepulcher where once were hidden the perverse and heretical, a secret society assembles to scrutinize those films which are rumored to drive viewers to madness and dissolution. Draw closer, dear listener, let your trembling ears sup upon the eldritch knowledge of the Cinemania Society. We Welcome, brethren and sistren, to this conclave of the Cinemania Society. Please be seated. And welcome to our listeners, to whom I will now issue this warning. We disciples of the Cinemania Society have studied the mysteries of the motion picture and meditated upon the silver screen for many years. Therefore, we have become inured to the films we scrutinize, which may contain hazards unsuitable to young and sensitive ears. As such, we advise anyone listening to do so with discretion. Guard your ears carefully, lest you develop a severe and irreversible case of cinemania. Present at our conclave tonight are Sinquisitor Ethan, Keeper of the Lenses. I am here. Scrutinizer Zachariah, Guardian of the Door. <sighs> I am here. Profligator Daniel, Possessor of the Word. Yo. And Verifier Andy, Master Illuminator. What up? I am Professor Andrea, scholar of San Francisco. I will be serving as pontifex of presentment for tonight's subject of scrutiny, Time Bandits, a film from 1981 directed by Terry Gilliam of Monty Python fame. 
<laughs> Verifier Andy will act as master castigator for this conclave. Verifier Andy, present the charges. <clears throat> Let's see what we've got here. <clears throat> Improper use of a toaster. Practicing medicine without a license. Thievery, bribery, consorting with the French. Transporting a minor across space-time boundaries without parental consent. Gratuitous Michael Palin in the first degree. Improper identification of what is edible. And of course, casting a Scotsman as a Cretan. Did I say that right? I was reading off. <laughs> I think he mispronounced Greek. Serious trigger warnings, though. Of violence. Yeah, that's all you got. That's yeah. my trigger warning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's not that many. Uh, this might not be a subject for uh, Cinemania, perhaps. Uh, this might be Violence against the soul! Thank you, Verifier Andy. To begin our summary of this film for consideration, Profligator Daniel? Huh? Oh, wait, what? What? Uh, Profligator Daniel, could you please begin with our summary? Put <sighs> the book down. Please put the book down. What are you uh, reading? Not what we're doing right now. No, this is like thing. Not reading anything. My God, you're reading Marquis de Sade. It's <laughs> just a little light bedtime reading, man. Um, okay, okay. So, all right. So we start off with ordinary and average boy Kevin and his parents having a quiet evening at home, eating TV dinners and watching a deadly reality TV game show. Kevin would much rather read about ancient Greek warriors and the many crippling and eviscerating techniques they had for defeating foes, which is pretty standard. After bedtime, Kevin plays with his definitely not My Little Pony before sleep, when suddenly a real-life actual My Little Pony, complete with armored knight, jumps out of his wardrobe and nearly tramples him in his bed. Now, I just want to say, this is the beginning of a long sequence through uh, the first act of the movie, where you could easily just have some, like, it is far more realistic if Kevin had just died and then you just cut to the end. Like, this happens constantly. <laughs> or he gets left behind and then the end, right? <laughs> like, it's just on and on and on, like one thing after another. So anyway, so he nearly gets trampled in his bed, is not killed, so the movie continues. It was just a dream, perhaps. But then his father barges in and tells him to keep down the noise. They want to see who's next on the unnecessarily humiliating and probably dangerous game show that they are watching on the deli. And this, Speaking this of trampling, the... this is a thing that uh, apparently is a recurring issue on Terry Gilliam pictures. In the Adventures of Baron Munchausen, um, Sarah Pauly, who is the eight-year-old who is acting as the lead in that film, nearly got trampled to death in a boat by a horse, which only just barely, due to handling skill of the writer, managed to land in the water next to her. But this is where shit gets even weirder. There was a plastique charge on the bottom of the tank, which the horse dislodged floated up and it exploded next to Sarah Pauly. This is one of the reasons that she says that she continues to have PTSD from having worked on that film and, and startles every time she hears a backfire on the street. It's, it's in her memoirs that she wrote that just came out uh, this year, actually last month, called Run Toward the Danger, where she unpacks a lot of her trauma about uh, working as a lead on a Terry Gilliam picture as an eight-year-old child. Oh yeah, no, no, Terry Gilliam, Terry Gilliam is an extremely unsafe film filmmaker and also loves working with children. It's not a good combination. 
Yeah. And he, he just has the opinion that if we need to see something happen, why don't we just do that thing? Don't worry about it. You need a horse, bring a horse in. I know. He loves the practical effects. Uh, he's just not very practical about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was really funny was is that in, in the book, actually, Polly says that uh, Gilliam uh, apologized for it being an accident. and But she found out later from the effects guy who was like, no, I'm not going to I'm not going to use the detonator because I can see this thing floating on the water that Gilliam sees the detonator from him and detonated anyway because he was in the scene he didn't want to call a cut but again that's all apocryphal that's all hearsay so i'm not saying gilliam actually did it but but sarah Pauli wrote that in in run toward the danger of it'll be fine just lie to one later don't worry <laughs> that's just a pony and after all friendship is magic so no, now I'm no now way. I'm super curious to if if there's a documentation anywhere about like some of the the mishaps that happened on this film because this one was done I think before Baron Munchausen. Yep. Anyway, okay. way to keep the door keeper of the door. Hey, I am not the doorman, and well, I'm late. Okay, I had some traffic between here and Altair. It's a it's a few light years. Thank you, Verifier Andre, Master Illuminator, for finally joining us today. I intended to. There you go. Could could you could you please pull in your your silver cord? It is just lying all over the floor. Somebody's gonna trip over that thing. <sighs> well, I need it. I need it. Please, I'm begging you. <laughs> God, Andre, I do not know where I am. Where am I? This is the conclave of the. Uh, Cinemania Society. Oh, the group of fools you told me about. Yeah, the, the group of really cool people I mentioned earlier. Totally. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, just stand in the corner over by the uh, the Star Wars uh, holiday special real quick. I will comply. Christmas Hi. will come. One day I too will be a real boy. Did you bring a super robot with you? Is that Robbie? Hey, he's better than Google. You know, we're going to discuss this at a later point. Yeah, Rob. exactly. How is he better than Google? I mean, I would say he's better than Ask Jeeves, but not Google. <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't worry. I updated him with everything on the internet ever. Um, probably traumatized him in the process, but, uh, you know, hey, that's the price of knowledge. So now he can just identify a cat. That's it. <laughs> I was going to say, haven't, haven't you watched any Avengers movies? Do you want an Ultron? Because that's how you get an Ultron. Yeah, we could put down an Ultron, right, guys? Yeah. Let's just get on with it. Okay. Okay. So um, we're back to Kevin and Time Bandits. So the next okay. evening, Kevin asks to go to sleep early, which is an unusual request for a 10-year-old. But his Can mother... Confirm. <laughs> but his mother is more concerned with thinking about their state-of-the-art kitchen appliances and keeping up with the neighbors. So Kevin goes to bed, leaving his parents none the wiser about his real plans. Kevin tries to stay awake, just waiting with flashlight and camera for something to happen again, but fails. This is another place we could just be the, the end. Later on, the dresser shakes again and the time bandits fall out in a noisy heap. Uh, I'm sorry, but that was a wardrobe, not a dresser. I'm sorry, but furniture is specific. You, you, you need to learn that, that you can't just say a, a random thing is something else. It's, it's not a dresser, it's a wardrobe. Are you sure it's not more of a shiffer robe? 
A Schiffer robe, indeed. Not I a guard. Have, what about a, a guard robe? It's part of Davenport, surely. I, ha uh, I have perhaps a, it's a credenza. I have a question for for the Brits. How come you are so inert with boxes that are bigger on the inside than they are on the outside? I mean, you have Doctor Who, and you also have the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's just, you know, you open uh, something. This is, and... a, this is a vital question, and I have an answer for you here, Brother Zachariah. It's right here in this teeny tiny little box. If you look really, really closely, it's right there on the inside. It's just your middle finger. <laughs> it's bigger on the inside. <laughs> you bastard. That's the most British thing I've seen all day. Now, just for, <laughs> just for reference, uh, the Time Bandits have arrived heavily armed with guns. And when we mention the Time Bandits in future, who we are referring to is Fidget, Strutter, Og, Wally, Vermin, and Randall. The six Time Bandits were supposed to be roughly analogous to the Monty Python troupe, and each was a caricature of a different python. For example, Randall, the self-appointed leader, was patterned on John Cleese, you know, the guy who says, you know, when in response to somebody saying, but we agreed no leader, says, right, so all of you shut up and do as I tell you. Um, <laughs> Furman, the filthy garbage gobbler, was patterned on Terry Gilliam. Um, Wally, the noisy rebel, Terry Jones. Strutter, who was uh, the backbiting Judas, was supposed to be Eric Idle. Fidget, the nice one, was played by uh, R2-D2's Kenny Baker, was supposed to have been Michael Palin, whom we just talked about. And the quiet but bossy Og, uh, who is also not the brightest and uh, tends to be the, one of the more violent ones, is Graham Chapman. Oh, and so now also, what I wonder about is if they were all in on the joke or if this was actually mean satire. <laughs> the meaner it was, probably the more in on it they would have been. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. These are the guys that during a Monty Python uh, reunion after Graham Chapman died, brought, uh, brought an urn that said, this is Graham, whether it was or not, that's up for debate, and then proceeded to spill it on stage and try to like stuff it all over the place. And then someone like vacuumed him up. You know, well, I love here's a funny thing. No, I love when they fall out of the sky and Kevin goes, who are you? And they all stand up and say, we are the time bandits. I just love when they use the title. No, they, the they all stand up and start film. shooting into the air with automatic weapons, which is <laughs> awesome. But this was uh, that was Jack Purvis. That was Jack Purvis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, Wally, uh, Wally, who was played by Jack Purvis, has a Sten gun, which you may recognize as being the same gun that, that, that the stormtroopers were carrying in Star Wars, but, you know, tuned up with little greeblies on the outside. But um, Jack Purvis, who is an astonishing actor, this guy is really good, everything he's in, and sadly um, was paralyzed in a car accident and died. But, like, like anything he's in, like he's in all of the Star Wars movies, you can always tell who he is, um, even when he's in, like, Jawa robes or an Ewok costume. Because he's, he's, you know, like his performance transcends the costume they put him in. Speaking of Baron Munchausen, he plays uh, Gustavus in uh, Baron Munchausen. Yes. Yeah. Gustavus. Oh, um, Kevin uses his handy flashlight to identify the intruders, and they almost shoot him in surprise. The end. Assuming that Kevin is the boss around here, the Time Bandits interrogate Kevin about the exit before realizing he's just a kid. And uh, out of nowhere, the head of the Supreme Being just the head, by the way, not creepy at all, just back from Emerald City, in fact, appears and demands they, quote, give him the map. Fortunately for them, they push against the bedroom wall and it falls back, lengthening into a hallway. 
Kevin is pushed along with them as they flee and jumps into a blackness and later swallowed up by a high-tech door in the sky. The estate agents were right all along. These suburban semi-attached houses are deceptively spacious. After landing somewhere, some when, Kevin asks if the Supreme Being is God. They don't know him that well, or they just work for him. Or at least they did. More on that later. Anyway, for now, they are desperate criminals. Wait, do you guys hear something? Could it be? It couldn't. And yet it is! Chumps! You mean cannibalistic humanoid underground music people? The same! Who left the fucking door open? Um, I might have thought that's where we kept the pickled treats and kumquat snacks. Hey, I have this shitty poster from before, and it says there's a time hole down the corridor. Wait, 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 wait. I can't leave Clark Nova behind. It has all my bug powder. Notes, notes, I mean notes. <laughs> like it. You mean, when are we? Don't you dare. That's a hackneyed cliche. I am a hackneyed cliche. Seriously, be better. I'm gonna cancel you on Twitter, I swear. Well, I believe we're in ancient Egypt. How do you know? Oh, the walls are covered in pictures of dudes with birds for a hat, squiggly lines, and people walking sideways, like this. Oh, good. Other people see it, too. Can anyone read that? Hmm, it says, crazy methods use papyrus hovel. Well, actually, I think it would be pronounced mephit. Way to mansplain hieroglyphics to our professor, Daniel. Thank you. I speculate this may be an ancient precursor to our own esteemed cult lair. Well, we should be safe here, so the conclave will have to go on. Where the hell were we? We were talking about time bandits, and this is... Off my leg, cat. Okay. Uh, so, they're someone else, and since they have agreed not to have a leader, Randall tells everyone else what to do. Realizing that they have arrived in the Napoleonic era, near the besieged city of Castiglione, so, so they decide to bravely run towards the danger. I mean, treasure. Or the danger. It's a treasure. They're not really sure. I'm not sure. No one's sure. Who's sure? The streets are a bit clogged with everyone fleeing at the moment or being dead, so they take a boat instead to sneak across the moat in a sequence that looks to belong in a far bigger budget. They run across Napoleon Bonaparte, who is enjoying a Punch and Judy show and not that interested in the fact that the mayor of Castiglione would really like to surrender to him now, please, sir. Yay, Thanks to Ian Holm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Ian Holm for, for the complete win in this role. One um, of three times in total that he played Napoleon. <laughs> oh my God, you're right. <laughs> it's like, it just puts it down on, on his resume, like expert uh, Napoleon impersonator. So technically his accent is fine. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks to a bit of random crossfire, Judy becomes a casualty of the war and the stage manager is desperate to put on a show that Napoleon might appreciate when the time bandits arrive and offer their services to entertain Le Grand Fromage. 
pleased by the Time Bandit's performance, Napoleon makes them his new generals. And they all sit down to a lovely dinner among the booty. I now, love having dinner among booty. Yeah, okay. So I, I, I just feel the need to mansplain this. Um, Napoleon wasn't actually that short. Um, he was pretty average height for the time. I think it was like 5'6 or 5'7. The English loved to uh, rag on him for this. Like, it was a total smear. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. But I think what you really need to understand is it was funny. Oh. It, wasn't there an issue what the French inches were uh, shorter than the English inches? No, 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 no. It was the other way around. French inches were longer than English inches. And it's because ah. the English felt a need to have more inches when describing something. Wait, I'm confused then. Does that mean Napoleon was shorter or taller than we think he was? Taller than we think he was. Yes, he was was taller than we think he was. Napoleon was of average height, and he wants to make this completely clear to everybody who might be listening now or forever in future times, he was of average height. Average is pretty short, though. Just saying. Well, you know, this also has, it gives us a good idea as to why it's necessary to standardize and why the metric system was invented uh, a couple of decades after this. I'm sure entirely by the French for Ooh. no reason at all. Yeah, the metric system <laughs> was actually brought in by Napoleon, yes. Uh-huh. All right. After a boring dinner and speech by a piss-drunk Napoleon to his new friends about how he really isn't that short compared to all the other global conquerors, the emperor finally falls asleep and they take his hand, and I mean his whole solid gold hand that he's been hiding up his coat the entire time, along with the rest of the treasure. They escape using a well-timed about-face and sneak past terrified soldiers with ill-gotten booty wrapped up in some convenient tapestries. One of the deposed generals has the good sense to look around, and then it is back on the run to another portal. I will say that after I saw this movie as a kid for the longest time, I genuinely thought that Napoleon had one hand. Because in the paintings, he always has a hand inside the coat. You know, it's like a thing. It's like his pose, his Napoleonic pose. And I honestly thought this was historical fact. He has one hand. Like Admiral Nelson? I don't know enough about Admiral Nelson to call you wrong, and so I'm going to say yes. A fun historical fact, um, Lord Admiral Nelson was the guy who invented the multi-use eating implement. He had one tine of his fork sharpened so he could use it as a knife. So although this wasn't technically a spork, I think it may have been called a knife. (laughs) So he invented the camping spork. That's amazing. Yes, oh it's, uh, it's, it's a little rude of you there. I was literally about to say that because I know all about Admiral Nelson, but you got ahead of me, so I didn't feel the need to say it. But yes, that's probably true. Okay. okay. What's past is prologue, right? I guess we're not good. Okay. <laughs> this time, the Time Bandits fall, interrupts Sir Vincent and Miss Pansy, two nobles in a carriage discussing Sir Vincent's problem while traveling through a charming forest. Carriage destroyed. The hapless Sir Vincent and Miss Pansy flee, but run into another set of bandits. And these guys aren't charming mysteries, but actual serious ne'er-do-wells who mean business. Meanwhile, Kevin is trying to convince the time bandits that they should let him join their notorious group. Yet another point where they can just be like, no, the end. So the fun thing was is that they wanted to have the time bandits all be little people because the main character was a child and they wanted to keep everything at more or less the perspective of a child. But not because they wanted to ridicule little people or make them seem like children because here's an interesting fun fact. Terry Gilliam, when he was a teenager, worked at traveling circuses and he often worked in the freak tent. 
And he actually fought really hard to make sure that the that the little people were not ridiculed in any way. So there was supposed to have been like a, a marching song that was kind of like a re-up version of hi-ho, hi-ho. And he was like, no fucking way. And this led to a huge fight between him and Handmade Films co-founder Dennis O'Brien and George Harrison, who had written his music. And Terry's like, no, I don't want these people ridiculed at all. They're people. They're absolutely just people. And and that he fought really hard to make sure that um, like they were represented as, as people in a way that was not at all uh, a subject of ridicule. Well, that's really nice of him. Yeah. I did not yeah. know that he... Uh... He had that background. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, no, he's, so. he's a raging asshole, but uh, not not in every single way. <laughs> yeah. So I appreciate that he's not ragingly ableist. Yeah. He just <laughs> occasionally tries to have kids trampled and blown up. I mean, what's wrong with that? Look, it's one thing to trample a kid under the hoofbeats of your mighty war horse, but ableism is not okay. <laughs> <laughs> they let it slip that this was actually their first ever raid. As we heard previously, they worked for the Supreme Being. Being Supreme, the Supreme Being decided to subcontract the more mundane bits of creation. And this model, not even unionized, used to be in charge of making trees, shrubs, that kind of thing. They got bored of uh, the grunt work, however, just creating the same old boring foliage over and over again. Fired for creating a hilariously bad tree as a prank, they were sent to the repairs department. Again, no union representation. But then they found the map showing all of the holes in the fabric of the universe. A shoddy job, only had seven days to complete it. Since the map shows those parts of creation where cutbacks and poor manufacturing standards led to time holes, they decided to use this map for the purposes of theft, robbery, and personal enrichment, and buggered off to be bandits. Thank you, do. Uh, excuse me, just a minute. Yes, can I see that, please? Uh, yes, please. Just, just give it, give it. Ah. Sorry. Can't stand those things. <laughs> anyway, where were we? So for the well, first he's... time we uh, encounter Michael Palin, the f- this is the first time we see another Python appear in the film. The, the studio were pressing this to be Time Bandits, a Monty Python film. But because they didn't have all of the Pythons on board, they only grabbed a couple of them, the Pythons together decided they weren't going to allow that. You cannot show this as a Monty Python film unless they're all in it. So it's a Terry Gilliam film, not a Python film. That led to a bit of Python on Python violence. Oh, goodness. Yes. Uh, If you're interested in... Oh, yeah. No, if you want to read a book that will absolutely blow your mind about what a giant giant shit show making this film was like a huge fight um there's a book called very naughty boys uh which is the history of handmade films this was not the first film that handmade made it was my misunderstanding when i said that in an earlier conclave um but handmade films was uh, was a production company founded well co-founded by former beetle george harrison uh, along with Dennis O'Brien, um, initially to produce Monty Python's Life of Brian, which got dropped by a production company because when they finally read the script, because they were just like, oh, Monty Python's making another movie. Sure, no problem. Go ahead. Here's all this money. Go do this stuff. And they got into pre-production to the point they were building sets in Tunisia when finally the production company, their first production company, read the script and they're like, oh, fuck this. This is <laughs> this is blasphemous as hell. 
and they dropped them and they're like uh what do we do so there was this whole thing where eric idol brought terry jones and dennis o'brien and they met george harrison who turned out to be a fan and um george harrison was like oh yeah no i watched monty python to get through the beatles breakup i love you guys and he was like yeah how much oh, how much do you need he's like well this this production is like running two million pounds sterling which in today's dollars is about 40 million dollars like, yeah no i got you I mean, can you imagine somebody just being like, yeah, sure, 40 million bucks, no problem, go ahead. Well, it's yeah, I mean, like, if he's a beetle. I mean, he said, I can buy you your film, but I can't buy you love. Uh, uh, I thought I'd do a bit of a film, what do you know? Well, yeah, I mean, so this moment this moment in history actually proves that George Harrison is bigger than Jesus because he can hey, buy Jesus. Yes. <laughs> I, I, well, he can buy Brian, at least, right, who is technically on, not on. Jesus. Jesus but, is in the film. George Harrison is not Jesus. Handmade films are not idols. They're not the Messiah. They're just naughty boys. Indeed. uh, That that Python on Python violence comment made me think. In a fight between Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam, which one do you think would win? Some of them are obvious. Some of them are obvious. Like, we all know Graham Chapman could kick anyone's ass. We all know they all could kick... Eric Idle's ass. But, you know, there's... Terry, Terry Jones has got that weaselly vermin cunning. You know, he's going to go low, attack the soft parts. Terry Gilliam, he's a larger fella. He's probably got good punching weight behind him. It's a tough uh, battle. John Cleese think... has got the reach. I think it would be funny to see Graham Chapman versus Eric Idle because it'd be like watching a couple of broomsticks in a bag. Well, you know, <laughs> you know Graham Chapman's a biter. He's also been like told that he was the most angry out of all of them. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam almost came to blows on Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which they co-directed. Okay. That's saying yes. So so they're they're all gathered up in the woods uh, somewhere in the middle of time, and uh, they take a quick snapshot of the group uh, with the map with Kevin's camera, which will absolutely not play a pivotal role in the film later, foreshadowing. The time bandits are caught by that other group of bandits from before. Randall's quick talking convinces them that the time bandits are the worst of the worst, meanest of the mean, cruel and vicious. So they go to see the boss of the other bandits with a proposition, and they meet Robin Hood, a polite, cheery fellow with progressive ideas about wealth distribution vis-a-vis robbing from the rich and so forth. John Cleese! Quick side note. John Cleese gets top billing on this picture, even over Sean fucking Connery, who had played James Bond at this point. So, like, he was an international star. John Cleese got top billing over Sean Connery in this picture. Um, (laughs) Exactly. Welcome, welcome, John Cleese. He proceeds to rob them of their stolen goods while thanking them for their generosity to the poor. At least, they didn't have to get punched in the face. Robin's crew are a little bit hazy on the whole charity thing, and hand out precious goblets and paintings to a waiting line of poor folk who have no way of actually reselling these for uh, money that they can spend on sustenance, uh, along with a few vicious beatings for good measure. One of the best comedy lines of a film when there's this thug just punching out members of the poor one after another as they come to collect goods from Robin Hood. And he says, oh, is that really necessary? Oh, yeah, 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 it's absolutely Punch, punch, punch. It's brilliant. What I love about that thug <laughs> is that thug's name is Marion, as in Maid Marion. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This, is, this is, of course, where the, the grandma punching comes in. 
But like, I love for me the way he says it when they're like, "Is that absolutely necessary?" It's like, "Oh, oh yeah, it is." Like the, that implies these guys are unionized. And yeah, that's he's a union. <laughs> No, the, the exact the exact wording was afraid so. <laughs> and it's it's an incredibly cynical and dark take on giving to the poor, and that's what yeah. we love about. Yeah, this. no, it's great. It's just like, well, uh, I mean, listen, we personally we love to be good commies and give to the poor, but um, you know, the union bylaws say we're bandits, and therefore we must be beating these people up. So we give them, and then we beat them up. Like, it's just sorry. I mean, I, I wish we could change it, but that's just, that's, those are the regs. Yeah. Uh, such an 80s take on socialism there. <laughs> oh, did you know that this, uh, this movie is going to be remade as a series? Oh, no. Do you want to know who's going to be directing the series or producing? Taika Waititi. That's exactly right. <laughs> wow. This, this, that instant, this happens so many times to me now where this goes, I hear something and it goes instantly from, oh, God, dude, fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, just apparently the man can do no wrong at the moment. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he's, he's kind of he's stepping up there. He's done, what, The Mandalorian. He's done What We Do in the Shadows. He's done uh, Reservation Dogs. He's done, um, this reservation uh, what is it? Dogs Our Flag is? Means Death. Yeah. Oh, damn. Yeah, he, uh, he's, I mean, he's, a he's an EP on that. He's a co-producer. Anyway. Right. We're going to collect a lot of time bandits, and we're going to all get together with a mip, and we're going to go through time, and we're going to steal things for our own enrichment. Uh, Taka, uh, uh, do, do you want uh, little guys this time? Well, I that's want them to be small, but not so small that they're not medium, and a couple of large ones. Wait, do you hear something moving through the dense reeds on the banks of the mighty Nile? You mean just by that magnificent view of a sphinx? Wait, wait, you mean by that magnificent view of the young empress taking a baby out of the Nile in a basket of reeds? This reminds me of Hebrew school. <laughs> nice, very Jewish. Next to that spectacular series of pyramids in their ancient glory? No, over there. No, that's just Andre getting pickles from the pickle cart. You're good, guys. Uh, you don't have compost, though. No, over there. <sighs> Quick! We need another hole! Follow me! Raisings? Suck it, you cannibalistic human! No time! Great, where are we now? Jeez, it's freezing here. Look, building of some kind. We can take cover. Well, we've either arrived before indoor plumbing and electric lights, or else after those things are a bitter memory from the before times. What is this? A hut full of rocks? Boulders. Stones. Kumquats? What's the difference? Uh, kumquats are a fruit, the others are stones. Oh, wish I was stoned. What? What? No, the difference between rocks and stones. When they have a bunch of runes carved on them, they become stones. It sounds cooler. Smart ass. So what does this say? Up here on the wall. Um, Mad Snorgris pre-carved rune stone hut. Ha! I told you they were stones. Damn it. 
Uh, Actually, I think that's pronounced Snorgrist. Snorgrist? Snorgrist. Not established. No, that's not Snorgrist. Definitely Snorgrist. The boulders are obvious because they're big, they're round, you have to climb on them. What about rocks? Can we all just compromise on rocks? and high on this bookshelf so Clark Nova can't get to it. Okay, Clocky boy, you got this. You can do this. Come on. This way. Halfway there. Living on a prayer for bug powder. Oh. That didn't go quite as I planned, but all's well, it ends well. Oh, yeah, baby. What's that sound? You guys back? Oh, fuck those chumps. What are they doing here? I gotta lure them away. Can't have them destroying our store. At least not any more than they already have. Hey. Brother Methuselah, I need your help with something. What? What is it? What's going on? Huh? Oh, the horrible bug thing again. It creeps me out. So, we're stuck here? <sighs> Looks like. At least until another time hole opens. We've got a while, so how about getting back to the conclave at hand? Uh, uh, let's rock. Uh, They're stones. Uh, I'm quiet. Quiet, you. Oh. Repository Andre, we're so glad you're finally back from outer space. Why don't you jump in there and take us away with part two? Yeah, I got it. Um, let me see. You had to come in the door with a sad look on your face. Oh, God. <sighs> After the crisis of Randall's non-leadership leaves them penniless once more, the Time Bandits start to fight over the map. Management strategy isn't really Randall's thing, you see, so it's best to get used to all the bickering and backbiting. However, the gang aren't quite as alone as they thought. They are being watched. During this fight, we are introduced to the evil one in his fortress prison with his trash minions. They are watching the whole escapade in evil's magical viewing pool. It seems that evil hasn't got anything better to do than watch what is going on in the world and provide a snarky commentary. He really is the first YouTuber. However, they see the map and the evil one comes up with a plan. Using mind control to speak through the mentally weakest of the bandits, 
He tricks the Time Bandits into seeking out the Fortress of Darkness so they can steal the most fabulous object in the world. Uh, it's really funny that they make fun of Og being the mentally weakest, the guy who's the stand-in for Graham Chapman, because Graham Chapman originally studied to be a doctor. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> Just like John Cleese originally studied to be an attorney, or <laughs> whatever the fuck you call them in America the prequel. Let's, uh, let's take a moment, though, to recognize the arrival in this film of David Warner. Dun-dun-dun! Yes. Oh, My yes. favorite Here film he actor. Is. He's monologuing, he's chewing up the scenery, he's choking it down, he is owning every scene he's in, and from this moment on, every time David Warner's on screen, it is an absolute delight. Oh yeah, no, Comrade Andre's got it totally right. He, this is like the uh. first React video, which spawned all the evil that is React videos. Like, his evil lives on. His evil React does Harden. live on. So is this, uh, for David Warner, is this pre-Tron or post-Tron? This is pre-Tron. Pre yeah, pre -tron. oh yeah. So By a think, few years. You think this spawned his whole conversation with Master Control later on? Well, maybe it did, but as they say, past is prologue. <laughs> I don't care. I'm gonna, I don't care what we call it, a rock or stone, I'm gonna throw it at you. Uh, he is my favorite villain actor of all time, and sadly, he just he just left us. He just left us. Uh -huh. um, yeah. Uh, but Verifier Andy did a quite lovely profile on Cinemania on him. Uh, if you don't mind me plugging our show in the show, <laughs> you can listen. He lived it a good here. evil life. <laughs> he was the best goddamn villain. He does. Uh, for me, it's like a toss-up between him and Jason Isaacs, but yeah, I hear you. For me, I really loved his performance in this because he does evil, but at the same time, he switches to comedy so quickly and effortlessly. You know, he, like, at one moment, he's monologuing. The next moment, he's shooting somebody, and then he goes right into, good question. <laughs> you know, it's the thing about it. The thing That's about one of my favorite evil. parts, actually. Yes. When he says, good question, right after he's incinerated his uh, minion. Subordinate, yeah. Uh, but if he is so powerful, why is the evil one stuck there? Good question. In fact, one of the minions mentions this to evil mid-rant. He was in prison there because, unlike the creator, he prefers technology to butterflies and nipples on men. Evil thinks that creation is disorganized and, frankly, needs better management. Evil management. Once the evil one is free, he will create the universe afresh, starting with lasers, day one. No messing about. Oh, and even though it was a good question, he still explodes the minion to applause from all the others. <laughs> Gotta keep up appearances and all that. I mean, as a villain, no notes. <laughs> yeah. he, he's, he's, mentioned that he's referred to in the script as evil genius yeah i mean oh. he's he's both evil and petty which is a thing <laughs> he's very evil but he's also petty enough that he's not going to let a little thing slide he's going to punish that but I, is he as petty as darth vader because darth vader is a petty little bitch <laughs> he's more so honestly and i i do love how david warner just like he keeps the comedy and the bits going while still being evil. I mean, as a kid, he still terrified me, but you know, him just like blowing up the guy and then just going, good question. 
just <laughs> still made me laugh. <laughs> it's like he does the big galactic global evil, but also he's willing to do the little evil on the small scale. He's yes. all the levels of the evil. Ever overlook the little people in your life. Oh boy. Yeah, you've got to squish the ants before you squish the elephants. Exactly, exactly. It's <laughs> you know, a sign of respect. Evil isn't the only one paying attention though. The supreme being once more manifests to demand the map, and this time he does try to warn them about the danger that they are in. The time bandits quite reasonably elect to flee at this point to the nearest time hole, but there are two of them side by side. Kevin picks one at random and dives in, but apparently he chose poorly from Randall's reaction. <laughs> from this point, Kevin and the Time Bandits have been separated. Kevin lands somewhere in mythological Greece on top of a masked fighter. Poor devil's about to be killed by a bull man. Or is it a man wearing a bull head? It's not quite clear, but myths are like that, aren't they? That guy gets distracted by Kevin's sudden arrival and loses the fight to the masked fighter, who turns out to be King Agamemnon, which is a surprise, played by none other than Sean fucking Connery, which is an even bigger surprise. The king believes Kevin came from the gods since he fell out of the sky, but he isn't too put off by it. This sort of thing happens all the time in mythological Greece. He did just fight a guy with a bull's head after all. Kevin's decision to sit next to a now headless corpse and wait there for the time bandits crumbles after 30 seconds, and he promptly joins the king as he returns to his city. There, Sean Connery impresses the populace by throwing the giant bull's head at them. Now that's how you get the people on your side. Tax cuts and land reform be damned. I'm going um, to tax you the same, but here, have this head of a man. And dude, a could you imagine if like Some Biden sort of whipped that out at like the next presidential debate? <laughs> just like, don't, 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 head of my enemy on the floor. Uh, my opponent yeah. makes some excellent points, but I'd like to propose this in a... Here's your fucking bull hat. Um, you know, it's funny in the script is they actually referenced him in, in the first draft of the script where they have him remove his helmet and revealing Sean Connery or another actor of equal but cheaper stature. And yeah. thankfully, this was a period in, in Sean Connery's career when he was in a bit of a dip and he was doing movies like Zardoz. And well, the other one he went on to right after this was Outland. He was This was what he did yeah, immediately he was before Outland. He was looking for as far from James Bond as possible. He wanted new projects that would move the public's appreciation of him away from James Bond. So he was he was looking for this kind of thing. Well, Zardoz did that. One of the other really funny things, though, was is that when he did this picture um, and they brought in the kid who played Kevin, whose name I can't remember, that kid was utterly astonished. It was just like totally too frozen to speak because, you know, Sean Connery was such a big deal. And so Sean Connery, like like they were about to get behind schedule and Connery, who was like aware that he was only on this show for a week at most, you know, was like, look, I have an idea. We should uh, shoot all of my scenes first and then we turn around and we shoot the kids scenes so he doesn't have to look at me. And so they, that's how they did it is like they, you'll see the, that the kid does not wow. appear in very much stuff with Connery because he was too just like starstruck to perform. <laughs> Yeah, he was just like, look, shit the kid down over there. The kid can shit over there where the kid is shitting. I'll act over here while the kid's <laughs> shitting down. The kid can be shitting in the corner. You just leave him shitting there for a while. He can be shitting, and I'll do my acting part. I'm the man now, dog. 
Uh, that over there, right? That was a lot of money. shit just to get to one gag. Well, this is peak. This is peak Sean Connery. This is absolutely him at his physical and acting best. He is. Uh, he looks the part. You believe that this guy is Agamemnon completely from the beginning. Oh yeah. I guess. I mean, it's hard not to believe that he's Sean Connery, but he certainly looks the part. Well, that's that was the that was the joke, though, I think, was because he's there. But yet he's still somehow totally believable as Agamemnon, even though everybody knows. I am knows Agamemnon, the husband of Clytemnestra. Gosh, <laughs> <sighs> okay. back from the Trojan Wash. Uh, guys? Silence. We're having a conclave. Uh, it's just we have a problem. What now? It's the chumps. They're here. Panic! Crap. Help me roll these dumb rocks out of the way. There's a time hole here somewhere. Actually, when they roll, they are stones. <laughs> Call back humor. Not the time. Oh, sweet. We're in the future. The distant future. Are you about to say we're in... In space! Oh man, I just left this place. Let me see if I can pull up anything on this computer. At least, I think that's what it is. I might be filling up a rectangular alien with a screen, for all I know. Just try to be gentle and go easy on the space bar. Here we go. This is Unstable Terrence says used hologrammarium. So, uh, actually, I think that's pronounced Terence. No, look, guys, look, look, look. They have a copy of Waterworld in 3D. Oh, I don't have this one. Truly a grim and nightmarish future. After all that, I need a snack. Is that chest freezer working? Wait, are you seeing what I'm seeing in there? Good Lord, it's... 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 Hideous. So wrinkly. Oh, free! Free at last! I've been trapped in that freezer for centuries! Oh, bloody hell, it's you lot! <sighs> Let's get on with the conclave. Free! Free at last! I'm free! Oh, glorious day! Oh, oh shit, he's loose! God. Ah, the smell. A typical day in the city, apparently, ancient Crete, ensues with Sean Connery showing Kevin the local sites and lots of Polaroid photos of the locals. Naturally, Kevin wants to know all about those various ways of killing an enemy he read all about in his books on Greek warfare, but wise King Sean tries to show him that there's more to life, instead impressing him with a game of ancient Greek three-card Monty. Which goes to uh, show that the grift is older than time. Yeah! Kevin is treated to a new tunic and a banquet where the king declares Kevin as his new son and heir to the throne. Think about that for a moment. Mighty King Kevin, warlord of the Mediterranean, it has a ring to it. I wonder how his wife feels about this since, according to myth, 
King Agamemnon had earlier sacrificed their only daughter to a sea monster? Now, one glance from the queen answers that question. She has opinions on the matter. During the banquet, masked dancers entertain the king with a magic trick, but Kevin recognizes them as the time bandits. Using Kevin as their unwilling volunteer, they make themselves disappear straight into a time hole. Everyone just claps and laughs until the gradual realization comes that this isn't a trick and Kevin is gone. Sean Connery must have thought the god boy Kevin returned to the heavens from whence he came. But to be fair, this is probably good for his marriage. Yeah, probably. <laughs> well, I mean, think about it. You've got a lovely, capable, intelligent daughter. Your husband sacrifices her to a sea monster and replaces her with this sniveling British kid. I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, not yeah, a imagine, good trade-off. Imagine your queen, Clytemnestra, King Agamemnon comes in and just says to you, where my daughter used to shit, this young boy is going to shit, and he's going to be shitting there next to me, and you're going to look on while he's shitting there next to me, shitting away where my daughter used to shit, and that's going to be fine. <laughs> wow. Well, this... This probably explains why uh, the the Minoan civilization collapsed. Um, no. Replaced by King Kevin. No, just obsession with child shitting. <laughs> I was going to say, small boys falling from the sky is no way to establish it's, a proper it's, government. It's one of those beautiful things about Monty Python movies. That, uh, well, not Monty Python. It's one of those beautiful things about Terry Gilliam movies. He knows enough about history to put these little details in, like the queen being brutally obsessed with being angry at Agamemnon without needing to say it. And if you know enough about the history between those two, then you know there's a reason for it. But it's there if you want to dig in, if you want to get into it. But they don't make it immediately obvious. I find it really funny, though, that nobody remarks on the goddamn Polaroid camera and these magical paintings that appear from the Polaroid camera yeah, of this stuff. Like, everybody it. sees him taking pictures. Nobody gives a fuck. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. The king just cut off a dude's head and threw it at him. They yeah. ain't saying shit to him. <laughs> My new son is there making pictures of people. He's just shitting there making pictures. He shits there and he okay, shits. Okay, we making... get the joke. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> It's time to Scat. get away. <laughs> it's, it's, womp and womp. I'm impressed. Andy actually got Ethan over his thing about poo jokes. <laughs> it's time to get away from it all and actually start enjoying the opportunities offered by the map. What could be more enjoyable than a luxury cruise? The time bandits land on the Titanic, interrupting Pansy and Vincent's romantic interlude once again. Interlude, inter obscenity. Nah. <laughs> Throughout history, these two just get all the luck. With their stolen Greek treasure, the time bandits are living large with three-piece suits and caviar, but sadly, we know how this story ends. Never yeah, let go, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> with Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet hanging on a door. Through. Which through. was large enough for both of them, I will yeah. just point out. Uh, let's mm -hmm. not get into the whole door thing. Even James Kevin Cameron. pouts after being taken away from Greek god princehood, but then Randall tells Kevin about the most fabulous object in the world that the time bandits desire. He found the route on the map. Where is this fabulous object? 
the fortress of Tomatoes. so it, it uh, it's actually it's pronounced world not world oh my god <laughs> <laughs> hey uh hey, hey daniel you want to take a quick uh, trip to to altair 4 i'm sure that the airlocks are perfectly sealed <laughs> <laughs> Kevin pouts after being taken away from Greek god princehood, but then Randall tells Kevin about the most fabulous object in the universe that the time bandits desire. He found the route on the map. Where is this fabulous object? The Fortress of Darkness, of course, in the time of legends. Kevin is about to explain why this is a colossally bad idea when the inevitable happens and the Titanic starts to sink. Money isn't everything, Kevin cries as they tread water, but the time bandits are sucked into a magical whirlpool in the ocean caused by the evil one and resurface in the time of legends anyway. Oh my God, when the Titanic was shinking, the band was just shitting there playing along. <laughs> I am going to shit myself. Fuck! <laughs> oh, spittle snakes and folder all. I think there's something coming through the airlock. Oh, shut up, you miserable wrinkle sack. But, but it's the. Quiet, you! It's the space jumps! Oh, wait, you mean the space cannibalistic humanoid this underground? This way! We've got to get out of here! But, but lasers, space! Move it! Oh! Alright, where have we landed? I landed on a bunion! You're all bunion, you're nothing but a bunion at this point. Oh, I have so many conditions. I'm about to give you more. Well, the map says we're in China, around 225 BC. Can you be more specific? It's a Wednesday. Wait, does that mean the thing they're building outside is the Great Wall? Well, it will be one day. Right now, it's the... Um... The not great yet, but we have big plans, Wall of China. What is this place, anyway? Look at that sign. It says, Secondhand Calligraphic Scroll Shop. We can hide out here. How do you know it says that? You're making it up. Listen, I'll have you know. I'll have you know. As you're, you're a linguist. You're a linguist. You can read ancient Chinese and grass style. Are you kidding me? I've been in school for years. What could read? Oh, no, she pronounced it correctly this time. Indiana Jones? I think my plan worked very well. <laughs> the specifics aren't important, but what matters is it's all someone else's problem. <laughs> now that deserves a reward for a job well done. Maybe a little, yeah. No, touch me. Hello. Welcome to the Laughing Tome. Wait. Hey, no, 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 no. What are you doing here? I told you never to use the front door. me. I need protection. only for people. Protection? Where Where are the spell books? What are you doing out here? The printer's in the back room. This is the children's section. Are you even allowed near children? In the light of the moon? What the hell? What are those? And why are they in my store? Oh. Oh. 
What the hell are these things? No, that's my freezer. Get off you. God damn, geezer. First, he uses up all my toner. Then he brings this lot into my store. Now he's in my freezer. Hey, check it out. I found his cool hat. Isn't that cultural appropriation? Nope, still just breaking and entering. Hmm, this place seems pretty quiet. Let's continue the conclave. Fairfire Andy, what a great opportunity for you to finish our summary of Time Bandits. The Time of Legends turns out not to be the dry land of legends just yet. The Time Bandits are floating in the ocean quite reasonably, wondering what they're going to do now, when luckily a ship comes by. It is a suitably fantastical affair, crewed by an ogre with a bad back, who catches them in a net while fishing for trash. Unfortunately for the ogre, his back seizes up as he throws the time bandits into a stew pot, which is the sort of thing you do when you're an ogre. Kevin promises he can cure his bad back with stretching if he lets them go. He agrees, and if you've ever had a bad back, you know how it is when you're ready to try anything. However, this is all part of Kevin's cruel and brutal plan. They throw the ogre over the side and push his wife overboard for good measure, because Kevin doesn't mess about. This is why chiropractors are a dangerous bunch. Yes. Um, I do want to point out that Catherine Hellmond, who plays the ogre's wife in this, is absolutely delicious as the enabler of, of a villain. Like she is, she is very sweet and obviously loves her ogre husband and has no problem sharpening up literal skewers to put these dwarves on. <laughs> Oh yeah, she's having a wonderful time. She's amazing. Um, and folks might recognize her as playing uh, Sam Lowry's mother, Ida, in Brazil, which is another Terry Gilliam movie, the one that followed this one immediately. She's been in lots of stuff, lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff going back to the late 70s. She was in Coach, it's that TV series. She was in Who's the Boss, um, if anybody remembers that horrible Mona. TV series. Yeah, that's right, she played Mona. Uh, anyway, so please carry on. Oh, clearly she's the boss. Now then. The Time Bandits sail away, but quickly run aground on something. It turns out, they ran into the head of a giant, wandering around in the water, and nearly topple off the ship. As the giant traipses onto land, he steps on a cantankerous couple in the middle of an argument, which effectively ends the dispute. Only after the Time Bandits drug the giant with sleeping potion that they literally inject into the top of his head does he sit down to take a snooze, and they can finally escape. Uh, another funny side note is that troll that comes out of the little of the little cottage that the mm. giant mm -hmm. steps on. That weird sort of elephant-headed troll reappears in Monty Python's Meaning of Life in that middle section where they're like, I wonder where the fish has gone. And I was like, why the hell does that look familiar? And then I realized, oh, it's the same weird little, you know, monster head from... Uh, 
from Time Bandits. I also really appreciated the way Terry Gilliam shot this scene with just a regular sized dude, but from a really low angle, so he looks ginormous. Yeah, this is yes. Gilliam's go-to effect. Whenever he needs a giant, get a big fat guy, put the camera down low, and it'll just work, and it does. They redid this gag for a movie called Evil Alien Conquerors, which I will suggest that at some point this conclave review. Uh, but they did a similar gag with a guy who um, they just used really subjective angles to make him look like a giant. This time, the Time Bandits managed to walk for miles before inevitably starting to fight again about the map directions. A near mutiny erupts after they walk face first into an invisible barrier. But as the violence escalates, a lobbed skull shatters the glass, separating them from the Fortress of Darkness. Surprisingly, yes, yes. this darkness, I have to say, this more than anything, the Fortress of Ultimate Darkness is what made me want to go into making movies. I just built models. I was playing with Games Workshop miniatures, and then I, after seeing this, this specific model, this is what made me think, I want to go into making models for movies, because it's fucking amazing. It is still, to me, one of the best miniatures ever made for a movie. And movie making's loss is also model making's loss there. Thank you, Brother Ethan. <laughs> I'm making <clears throat> movies myself. What the hell are you talking about? Surprisingly, none of them are scared of the incredibly creepy, gigantic, skull-decorated fortress. The evil one is ready for them and sets a trap. A maze leading to the most fabulous object in the world. The prize of this game show is the Wonder Major All Automatic Convenience Centerette. Ironically, the game show presenters are Kevin's mom and dad, but Kevin knows this is a trap. His parents never smile like that. Uh, also, by this point, Kevin seems to know a thing or two about luring people to their doom by making convenient promises. The Time Bandits, however, rush blindly towards the prize. Once they arrive at the end of the maze, the Evil One reveals himself, takes the map, and throws them into a big cage, hanging over an endless void among other similar cages filled ominously with bones. Kevin can't get away either. He too is captured by a skull-headed creature. In case it needs mentioning, the Evil One really likes the whole skull motif. I suppose that's one way to get ahead of yourself. <laughs> oh man, no, cut. we're gonna cut that. That's that's too awful. That's low hanging. That's so low hanging. <laughs> also great effects here. It's literally a cage in a big black void. Nothing. Yeah, I, I do not know how they did half this stuff with the budget that they had. And that they did it, they did it grandly with that budget. And, uh, get, yeah, it's very believable, and it's all practical. Uh, matte paintings, I'm pretty sure for the maze, but like as far as the cages go, they sell it. Things look bleak, literally. Kevin and the gang are hanging in a black void, and that really is the gold standard for your whole general sort of bleakness. But then Kevin reveals the Polaroid photo he took of the group with the map earlier in the film and it appears that there is a time hole in the Fortress of Darkness itself, the biggest one of all, that could lead any time and every when. The Time Bandits cut some strands from the rope holding up the cage to create another, smaller rope, but this leaves them quite literally hanging by a thread. They manage to swing one of their number like a pendulum and set up an impromptu tightrope act to circus themselves to freedom and start to run away to the time hole. 
but Kevin stops them. He convinces them that they can't just leave evil with the map because he'll use it to destroy the world. That's um, just a note. One of their number is the boss, Jack fucking Purvis, who did all his own stunts. He is a badass. And these are pretty amazing stunts, considering that they had no money for safety crew, obviously. Hey, wait, stop. Do you, do you see that up on the wall? The okay wall? The not great yet, but we have big plans wall of China. Do you see any other walls around here? We're in ancient China. Which wall am I going to be talking about? Uh oh, I see what you mean. They're coming over the wall. Ew, phrasing? <clears throat> they're cannibalistic human. I thought you were going to interrupt me. No, no, they're a fair way off yet. Well, maybe I don't want to say it now. Okay, you don't have to say anything you don't want to. Let's see. Map says right. Through here. Follow me. Drop those lychees, Andre. You don't need them. Why not? We have to run! You can't run and carry lychees in your mouth at the same time. You'll choke. God, it's like I'm talking to my toddler. Watch me. I got this. Ow. Pretty neat. What is all this stuff? Looks like gramophones. And look at this. They they used to use these wax cylinders to record sound onto. Uh, well, those were much older, but based on what I see around us, this must be the 1920s, I'd say. Well, anyone know how to use these things? You, you just have to press this control here. Rhetorical question, you fossil of the world's shittest lizard. Turn it on! So cruel! Welcome to Honest Sal's Discount Wax Cylinder Repository. Why, buddy, you can find the most advanced technology for recording sounds here at Sal's. We've got all these guys. Well, that's a piece of crap, but a lousy piece of technology. <laughs> Andy, uh, that now that we are back, uh, if you could continue uh, with the summary. Of course, of course. <clears throat> um, evil, meanwhile, has started his plans for the new world, and this time there will be no messing around with mollusks and fungi. He's beginning with computers. He turns one of his minions, Benson, into a dog to guard the map while he checks out the YouTube how-to videos in his vision pool. When the time bandits tiptoe in to steal the map, Faithful Benson barks, but Evil is too preoccupied to pay attention until it's too late. During this robbery, Evil turns one of them into a half-pig. Just because he's evil doesn't mean that he has no sense of humor. Scary, skull-headed creatures chase all of the time bandits as they flee with the map, and so Kevin and the half-pig distract the monsters while the others escape. Evil corners half-pig and Kevin, and just as they look doomed, the other time bandits return with reinforcements from many different eras, including knights, Cretan archers, and some cowboys. Evil makes mincemeat of all of these foes in ironic ways. 
then takes over Randall's tank and Wally's spaceship because high-tech weapons of annihilation are totally his jam. Wally and Randall escape the gun and laser fire, but in the chaos, a falling column kills Fidget. In an intense, emotional scene, Wally is about to take on evil himself in revenge, when suddenly, evil is struck from behind and turns into a charcoal statue. Okay, so funny note here is this scene was kind of improvised on the fly. If you read the original screenplay, the column was supposed to have fallen on Sean Connery's character, Agamemnon. And they didn't have Connery for this, uh, obviously, because, you know, he was originally just contracted to show up and play Agamemnon. He's like, this is my schedule, I'm done. Um, and then he was out, out ski. He so basically, you know, they were like, Connery, we need you. And he's like, I'm going to have to shit this one out. I'm yes. just going to shit over here. I guess he. Yes, that's exactly what he said. Yes, yeah, he. he he, um, yes, he did. He left them dangling. Yeah, but I mean, uh, Wally but, no, is, Wally's amazing he, here. Yeah, no, this led to this really fantastic moment where there's some pathos in everybody's favorite fidget, Kenny Baker, who played R2-D2. Originally, the character of Fidget, who's supposed to be the cute one, well, you also might notice that he doesn't have any teeth. <laughs> they wanted it to be a bit horrifying at first. They didn't want people to initially see him or really any of them as cute. And so the makeup team was planning on giving him some pretty horrendous uh, dental prostheses that would look like uh, he had filed teeth. And when they said, okay, well, you know, we want to do this. And he says, oh, okay, are you going you gonna to give me some custom dentures? And they said, well, yeah. And so he said, well, why is that? And they said, well, we want you to look kind of scary. He's like, oh, how about I just take out my dentures? So he took them out. <laughs> he showed them and Terry Gilliam was like, yeah, yeah, bingo. There you go. You got it. And then like he and and, and Jack Purvis's character, Wally, who were real life buds, they were able mm. to just like play that scene and actually get some real emotion and pathos for these little people and very, very much humanize them instead of leaning on their star power, which I thought was an excellent creative choice. But they did actually manage to get Connery back when it was uh, on break from outland to to squeeze him in at the end the supreme being has arrived now instead of a disembodied head he is actually a guy in a boring suit the supreme being resurrects fidget so he can get back to work then tells the other time bandits to clean up the mess every bit of evil has to go in the trash bin no exceptions and the time bandits gratefully get back to work Randall tries kissing up to the Supreme Being, now that they've been caught, and asks for their old jobs back. The Supreme Being agrees to return them to the small shrubs and bracken department with a cut in salary backdated to the beginning of time. Sounds fair. Well, um, the other note too is that the, the actor who plays the um, Supreme Being is Sir Ralph Richardson who was one of the 20th century's first dramatic knights, you know, which is a Satan, person who was knighted for services to drama. In fact, oh, yeah. he... Very much a get for this production. Huge get. Um, you know, like he, he was actually considered to be a superior actor to Sir Laurence Olivier, who was knighted after him. <laughs> Evan isn't ready to take this whole evil thing lying down and starts a metaphysical debate with the Supreme Being about why evil needs to exist at all. 
During this debate, one chunk of evil breaks off and is hidden underneath the rubble. When the Supreme Being and the Time Bandits leave with the waste bin of evil, they leave this chunk behind along with Kevin. Which seemed kind of harsh. I mean, he helped them defeat evil, and yet they're like, peace, and then just disappear. Yeah, fr from this point, they're just like, well, we've, we're back to our old jobs again. We're glad not to have been transformed into beetles by the Supreme Being. Bye. Well, th that was the thing that I always thought was kind of funny, too, is that, like, they're still incompetent enough that they leave a chunk of evil behind. Even with God there, you know, quote-unquote, you know, God, the Supreme Being, overseeing what they're doing, they all still fuck up and leave evil there. Ah, but do they? Or is it part of the plan? Ah. No, it's not part of the plan. They fucked up. <laughs> <clears throat> On the matter of why the Supreme Being would permit a creature like evil to exist in the first place, the creator of all the cosmos seems a little bit annoyed at the question. He just remarks that it's probably something to do with free will, and if that isn't the most succinct and complete answer to the question of evil you're ever going to get, I don't know what is. Well, that's about as deep a thought as you can get in the Terry Gilliam picture. He makes you think the deep thoughts, but he does it in such an off-the-cuff, offhand way that it leaves you ending up thinking about it more, I think. Yeah, and as a kid, as a Sorry. kid watching this, it really does make you think. The fact that the kid's the one who asked the question is also very interesting. Well, those are the out-of-the-mouths-of-babes, you know? That's the whole thing, is children uh, ask the most important questions, especially about shit like that that people just take for granted. I think the kid's asking the question that all the children in the audience are asking right now. I mean, he's the supreme being. He didn't have to allow any of this. Why would he? And Gilliam is going, yeah, of course the kids are going to be thinking this, so we're going to ask it. Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a reasonable question that adults would not ask. They just take it for granted that, oh, okay, evil exists. Yeah, but kids would definitely be like, hang on. Smoke starts rising. Far too much smoke. Kevin starts to cough. Everyone seems to be leaving him without a second thought. And then suddenly, Kevin wakes up from what seems to be a dream to a house full of smoke. A firefighter that looks surprisingly like King Agamemnon rescues him from the flames. It's this like, there can be only one. Oh, God. This is pre-Highlander. Highlander is, 2 does not oh fucking exist. Oh, my no, God. I God. Just, guys, no, guys, Sean Connery guys. was in Highlander 1. No, listen, he was in Highlander listen. 1 and 2. So, not, not too much spoilers, but he cuts off the Manitar's head, and then later on, he's the fireman. You think that this was actually Rodrigo, or what was his name from Highlander? Yes, his name is Rodrigo. All right, well, he plays on. a Greek and then he plays a Spaniard. No, what do you want from a Scotsman? No, it's actually Rodriguez or Rodrigo from Highlander all the time. I was born 3,000 years ago in Egypt. The cause of the fire was a toaster oven, but inside is a missing chunk of evil. Kevin still has the photos from his time travels and they confirm it. It was all real. Kevin shouts a warning, but his parents touch it anyway and disintegrate. Good. The firefighters leave and Kevin is left alone on planet Earth in our solar system in the Milky Way, which fades out to the map. The end of this movie was something of a debate, actually more, I wouldn't even say a debate, this was of a bitter 
row between Terry Gilliam and Dennis O'Brien, um, the co, uh, the oh, co-founder really? of, yeah, oh yeah, no, like they, they debated this to the point that they almost came to blows, which, um, yeah, yeah. no, the, and, and kind of led to the, like I said, this is a, an apocryphal story, but apparently like this row is what led George Harrison to never speak to Terry Gilliam again. If the legend is correct, it may not be the case, but legend goes that George Harrison didn't speak to Terry Gilliam after this movie got made. And this was the reason why was this end because there's a couple major things. When you read the script, the way it ends, the parents don't get blown up. What happens is that, that Kevin gets disgusted, takes the map, which he also for some reason currently has, and marches off. He just walks off across the hills and suddenly we see that he's marching with the time bandits themselves and there's this marching song that they're doing and he marches off into the sunset. Terry Gilliam thought that ending was stupid and I, frankly I have to agree with him. Um, but they, you know, when he said, okay, here's what I'm going to have to do is have the kid do it. The, the argument was between him and Dennis O'Brien. And Dennis O'Brien was like, no, that's too downbeat. No, that's too downbeat. And they got to the point where they, he was like, well, no, I mean, this is, this is, you know, like they got into the huge argument over it. And finally, the way they resolved it was they said, we're going to do a screen test. We're, we're going to show this, the version that I shot with these two kids, you know, with, with the parents getting blown up at the end. We're going to show this to an audience of kids and see what they say. So they do it. And Dennis O'Brien, you know, reluctantly agrees. And he's like, all right, fine. So they get an audience of kids at some place in fucking Harrow, I think. And they sit him down and they watch him. And the very first kid who comes out, a six-year-old kid, and Gilliam asks him, you know, with Dennis O'Brien, like, looming over him behind him. So what did you think of the film? What was your favorite part? And he's like, the part where the parents blew up. <laughs> and of so, course. Yeah. Because, like, you know, what kid hasn't dreamt of their parents blowing up? Which is the argument that Gilliam made to O'Brien. <laughs> so he just turns to O'Brien and looks at him and folds his arm. And this is like, okay. But because this led to such a bitter row, they didn't end up doing the song, which Harrison had written and recorded, which Gilliam hated because he was like, this is the 1979 version of Hi-Ho, Hi-Ho. Fuck this. I don't want them dehumanized. So George Harrison was like, all right, fine. Fuck you. I'm going to write this song. So he wrote this song called Dream Away, which you can listen to. It's on any place where you stream music. Mm. And there's a, he wrote a dig, a lyrical dig at Terry Gilliam in it. This greedy feeling, wheeling, dealing, losing what you've won. See the dream come undone. Because he was so pissed off at Terry Gilliam's behavior with, with Dennis O'Brien. And he insisted. He said, no, no. As the person who is uh, bankrolling this film, I'm going to insist that this music be played under the uh, under the end credits of the film and that's what he did and it's a really good song as well it's actually really mm -hmm. awesome it's pure george harrison it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. oh yeah and yeah it's frankly right. you know if a beetle says well fuck you i'm gonna write a song about it then you just have to accept <laughs> that it. you have to take it <laughs> yeah oh they're bigger than jesus funny enough um as an adult watching the ending i'm like what the fuck but as a kid i can see that point of view because they yeah. were terrible parents Oh, yeah. <laughs> I showed this to my daughter. I have a, a seven-year-old daughter. Um, she and I watched this. And she. And it was funny because she watched it. She got to the end and she's like, she was horrified. She was like, but what happened to his parents? Where's, what's going to happen to him? I was like, did that bother you? And she's like, well, not the parents blowing up, but who's going to take care of him? <laughs> and I was like, oh, you sweet little kid. Oh, I absolutely feel for you. Yeah, I had that same thought too when I was a kid. Yeah, it's fine. It'll, it'll work itself out. It's important that the parents are blown up. That's the big thing to take away from this. <laughs> There's some kind of commotion at the door. 
Well, we can't just open doors. We have Zach for that. I'm not your fucking doorman. Uh, it looks like a group of well-dressed Italian gentlemen with Thompson guns. I'll just ask what they want. Okay. <clears throat> well, it's like this. Apparently, Honest Sal owes Frankie Knuckles, Jimmy the Face, and Three Toes Tony quite a lot of money. So tell them we don't have any. <laughs> I did try that, and you see, I don't think Frankie Knuckles is really happy with that answer. And um, in did general, telling them we don't have money is not usually something you want to say to a mafioso. Did you try reasoning with them? Uh, they offered to show me how Three Toes Tony got the name. Way ahead of you. Brother Methuselah, stall him. Bullocks to that! Oh, shit! Back there, there's a hole. We made it! And we even finished discussing the film in detail. <sighs> what an adventure. Oh boy, that was rough. I didn't think we'd make it through that one. A truly epic battle. Hey, you know what's great after such a glorious victory? <laughs> ah, shit. Who let you out? Love powder. Lay it on me, big guy. Smush it between the keys, wrap it into my carriage, return. Okay, you're going back into Brother Daniel's room, you freak. <laughs> No, happy, happy! Okay. You know, Time Bandits is such a strange film. I've seen it over 20 times and I'm still not sure I understand it. Look, it's a simple story. Dwarves get mad, boy meets dwarves, dwarves flee omnipotent super being through time, boy helps dwarves on a paradox-inducing robbery bender. Normal consequences follow. Ultimate avatar of evil desires 1980s consumer electronics. Supreme being intervenes, and Sean Connery shows up at the end. It's a tale that's been told over and over, and yet never gets old. <sighs> Damn it. So, what happened while we were away? Okay, I think I've, as the kids say, sussed it out what happened. Brother goddamn Methuselah forgot to bolt the door to the hazardous material room when he went to get the interocitor. Don't worry, though. Looks like the bug mutant typewriter found a way to get the chumps out of here. It's a win for us. We did. How? We dealt with it. What do you mean, dealt with it? We made the problem go away. What did you do? Don't worry about it. It's all good. What the actual... Which one of you assholes use fucking bug powder to lure a raving pensioner into my store followed by a bunch of angry mutants that I had to dispose of? It's all good. It's all good. No, it's not all good. They completely trashed the place. It's all fine. It's all good. Who are you anyways? I'm Doña Esperanza Cervando de de Rosas Amor Ruiz de Bro. But there are those who call me Hope. 
I run the bookstore next door. Wait, is that where Brother Methuselah ended up? Yeah, the old guy who uses up all my toner printing pamphlets. Didn't know he had a name. He was cowering in a corner with a book in his hand shutting. In the light of the moon. Then he muttered something about a protection spell and ran off. I mean, obviously he didn't cast a protection spell. He was just reading The Very Hungry Caterpillar. Admittedly with impressive gravitas. Poor bastard, if he'd gone just one aisle over, he'd have found the actual spell books. Wait, your store has both spell books and the works of Eric Carle, beloved children's author? How did you never notice? We've shared a wall for 15 years. Yes, it's The Laughing Tome, family-friendly occult books and supplies. Well, I ran the bookstore next door until your old fart and his horde of mutants destroyed it. Then the geezer hid in my freezer. So now I can't even get to my stash of vodka and popsicles. What am I going to have for breakfast? <laughs> Serves him right. He left the door to the hazardous waste storage unbolted in the first place. Ah, oh, this coming from the guardian of the door. Right. You know, in my defense, we got a lot of fucking doors. You should get on that. Basically, you're saying this is a win because the chumps became someone else's problem. Sounds like Operation Someone Else's Problem was a smashing success. Smashing. That's one way to put it. And somebody else? Yeah, that was me. Now I'm your problem. At least until my store gets fixed. Wait, if he's frozen in there now, that means when we found him in the future, um... Um, uh, perhaps you might let me out of the freezer to spare me agonizing centuries of frozen boredom and pain? As opposed to your current thought-out boredom and pain? <laughs> oh yeah, we'll get right on that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, drat. Well, that means judgment remains. We must vote on whether this film is guilty or innocent of cinemania. Well, if you're looking for opinions, I've got a few. Okay. Profligator Daniel, what is your judgment? So if for no other reason than right at the beginning of the film, right, the title card is just this giant portion of the map, but the map just has this mishmash of alchemical symbols, right? You've got um, the ring of the holy uh, phrase from the Quran about uh, the purification of the soul. You've got a couple of different random symbols from other alchemical treatises. Like, there's a lot of hodgepodge there. So, like, the fact that they don't put the same things together, it's just a chaotic mess of alchemical symbols. I think that could absolutely create cinemania in some way. Okay. Also, given the fact that, like, I mean, this movie is itself a self-reflexive, like, time loop, where, like, all we're seeing is the Groundhog Day perfect version where Kevin doesn't die or get left behind. There's so many moments where it should just say, and then he dies, right, because, uh, what was it, Verge eats him or they stab him, or he gets accidentally shot, or trampled by a horse, or drowned, or left behind, and just cut to the end, and they sell it in Sweden, right? Like, absolutely, Cinemania. And since it's a Gilliam movie, dog, any of those right. could have actually happened in real life. Right, right, and they actually had to get, like, Kevin was actually Quintuplets once upon a time, the actor who plays <laughs> Kevin. <laughs> Repositor Andre, how do you judge this film? Uh, I, well, uh, oh, paper. Uh, this film is 100% guilty of cinemania. Um, yeah, 
based on all of the details that you recall from having watched the film, eh? <laughs> uh, you're telling me proud. Sometimes you have to shit there and make judgment. Oh, so shit down, just shit in the corner, and judge. Did you forget to do your homework again, Andre? Maybe. Hey, it's a long way here from, from Altair 4, or Altair yes, E, it, as it should be in scientific terms, but whatever. It's a long way in which you could watch a movie. Okay, Boomer, you should know homework isn't something we do here in Gen Z. Yeah, exactly. Homework yeah. is outdated. <laughs> and you, interloper, uh, what is your judgment on this film? I don't have a fucking clue what y'all are doing, but... I mean, I know it's a Gilliam film, so it's obviously guilty of something. Uh, I mean, enough, I've seen enough. enough of his films. He tries to kill small children and, you know. I mean, who doesn't? Goes out her budget and. Well, and, I don't know if I'd say he tries you know, to kill small children. Maybe for neglect. I mean, he accepts the possibility. He doesn't try hard enough not to kill small children. He, he understands that may no. be an outcome. Nobody wants it to happen, but sometimes it happens. Gotta break a few eggs to make an omelet. And he's a, a serial yeah. recycler of tropes and actors. There's a reason his casting calls are all for quintuplets. <laughs> well, you know, so and Canadians. Canadian. He, he likes to cast Canadian children because they're all so compliant. <laughs> oh my God. I'm not joking. <laughs> the Canadians are too nice for their own good. <laughs> Bring me your finest Soviet twins. And, Canadian yeah. quintuplets straight from the freak shows. Scrutinizer Zachariah, how do you judge this film? Well, being that I saw this for the first time when I was about Kevin's age, it left a stain on me. It made me think about the purpose of my nipples at a very young age. And what I found was disturbing. It also, in later viewings, made me think of Sean Connery and his ability Ability to transport himself from the Greek age all the way into the modern age, which was the 80s, which made me think of another character that he played that transported through time and removed people's heads. That being of Ramirez from Highlander. So my working theory is that Time Bandits and Highlander are both connected. Not Highlander 2, mind you, because we do not, I repeat, do not acknowledge that that film exists. So, for making me question the purpose of my nipples at a young age and being linked to Highlander, I judge this film guilty. Inquisitor Ethan, what is your judgment? I can't even count the number of times I've seen this film. And I all... It was 31 times. No, more than that, I'm sure. I, I love this film and I could literally watch it any time. Um, but I can say that it definitely instilled in me a love for Terry Gilliam movies as a specific thing. Um, and is one of the films I would say inspired me to go to film school and begin studying because I became obsessed with Terry Gilliam and Terry Gilliam movies and and then uh, got the idea at one point that I, I thought maybe I might be creative enough to make films like him. Nobody's creative and as creative as he is. That guy is that guy is an uh, I would say even Stanley Kubrick would probably have doffed his hat to him for how um, how much of an auteur he was. But uh, for inspiring or being, you might say, the, the ultimate example of the auteur director um, and inspiring me uh, along with countless other uh, students of my generation to go to film school and try to become their own little Terry Gilliams, I would say this film is wildly guilty. Um, 
for inspiring Cinemania and me and countless others, and uh, or, or at least getting you started on the path to watch other Gilliam films and thus develop an uh, irreversible case of Cinemania, as I have. And Verifier Andy, what is your judgment on Time Bandits? This film asks many questions. Questions like, given that God is infinite and given that the universe is infinite, would you like a piece of toast? And it suggests that toast is evil and will destroy your parents immediately. This film scarred me brutally as a child for which I'm forever grateful. However, I must judge it guilty of all cinemania. And having looked through the charges from the beginning, in addition to everything that's already been said, I would also have to agree that this film is guilty, especially the improper identification of what is edible. Children, evil, rats, um, quite a large list, um, which we would not encourage in a functional human not chump society. So I also concur. We must conclude that this film is guilty of cinemania. And with that, this conclave whew, is finally adjourned. That episode of the Cinemania Society featured Daniel Scribner, Andy Slack, Andrea Palladino, Zachariah Burks, Andre Luke Martinez, and Ethan Ireland. Introducing Hope Bravo. Written by Andrea Palladino and Andy Slack. Produced, mixed, and mastered by Ethan Ireland. Graphic design by Andy Slack. Music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Visit our website at thecinemaniasociety.podbean.com and check out our social media feeds. We're on Twitter at TCS underscore Cinemania. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review wherever you found us. Mention us on social media or find us on Ko-Fi to throw us a few bones. We love to make fun stuff for folks, but it isn't free. Anything and everything helps. Coming soon, the Cinemania Society will be creating pieces of video media, short films and the like, so stay tuned, Cinemaniacs. The Cinemania Society is a production of the Cinemania Society, LLC.